Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Dresner, a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Dr. Dresner is the author of multiple books, including Theories of International Politics and Zombies, The System Worked, How the World Stopped Another Great Depression, and most recently, The Ideas Industry, How Pessimists, Partisans, and Plutocrats Are Transforming the Marketplace of Ideas. Dr. Dresden's work has been published in numerous scholarly journals, as well as in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Affairs. Dr. Dresner, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. You know, I'd like to start with your latest book, The Ideas Industry. In it, you argue that there's an important distinction between public intellectuals and thought leaders. And can you explain what that distinction is and why it matters? Sure. So essentially, um, when I'm talking about public intellectuals and thought leaders, they're both intellectuals and they often are, are, can both generate interesting insights. Um, essentially, the division sort of maps onto Isaiah Berlin's old essay called The, the Hedgehog and the Fox. Um, in which Berlin talked about a fox knowing a little bit about a lot, whereas the hedgehog knows one big thing. So essentially, in my typology, public intellectuals are the foxes um, of the marketplace of ideas. They usually have some degree of expertise without question, um, but they're often willing to opine about um, ideas or topics way beyond their original area of expertise, and they often know a little bit about it, to be fair. The key thing to realize about public intellectuals is, is that public intellectuals are critics. They can tell you everything that is wrong with everyone else's idea. Um, on the other side, you have thought leaders. Thought leaders are evangelists. They have one big idea that they think can explain everything. Um, and so as a result, any sort of question or any new problem that is thrown at a thought leader, a thought leader will usually find a way to somehow bring it back to whatever their, bi their original big idea is. So what I argue in the book is that a functioning marketplace of ideas needs both of these kinds of thinkers. Um, if you have a marketplace of ideas dominated by public intellectuals, then the barriers to entry are too high, essentially, um, which means the marketplace becomes stagnant, becomes ossified, it becomes really hard for new ideas to sort of penetrate this market. On the other hand, um, a world in which uh, thought leaders are dominant and public intellectuals are weaker uh, is one in which the barriers to exit are too high. Um, so as a result, you very often have a very wide-ranging, heterogeneous set of ideas but the problem is, is that stupid ideas don't die. Uh, essentially, one of the functions of public intellectuals is to critique ideas to within an inch of their lives. And a world in which public intellectuals are generally weaker is one that allows thought leaders to propose a whole variety of ideas without necessarily stress testing those ideas. And essentially, the book argues that there have been a couple of trends over the last few years that have essentially stacked the deck in favor of thought leaders at the expense of public intellectuals, which is why we are where we are now. Because what, when you mentioned it, I immediately thought of one thing, and that's TED Talks, which seem to be everywhere now, or TED-style talks. And those those folks, that would be an example, right, of, of thought leaders, certainly. Right. I mean, I think public intellectuals can give TED Talks, but, but the TED Talk format is very well suited for a thought leader, because what they're generally trying to do is come up with an idea um, that, you know, suggests... We really need to totally rethink the way we're doing things. Um, it's usually short. It's usually punchy. It's less than 20 minutes. 
Um, and it always ends in a standing ovation. That is the classic thought leader mode. And, and so it, it sounds like it's, I mean, it's much more positive, certainly. And I'm wondering if maybe that's a big part of the attraction, why the deck has gotten stacked, is that people want some sort of a positive, simple, quick message. You don't necessarily want to hear a lot of critique without any, without any well, simple answers. Right. This is an advantage that thought leaders have. Thought leaders generally are going to offer solutions in a way that public intellectuals are generally reluctant to. One of the things about a critic is that a critic can tell you everything that's wrong with everyone else's idea. They very often can't engage in their own sort of, uh, you know, notion of positive creation, whereas a thought leader is very often offering an easy solution um, or at least an appealing solution. And, and just in general, people are, are obviously more drawn to sort of a positive argument than they are to a negative critique. And they're also drawn to a more simple, not simplistic, but simple argument as opposed to just someone saying it's complicated. So do you feel that uh, perhaps uh, intellectuals or academics, I guess I would say, are not quite as well suited to be thought leaders? Because when I think of when I think of most of the academics I know, they're people who don't necessarily want to come up with simple, bold solutions. They kind of hem and haw on one hand, on the other hand. And, and when I think about thought leaders, that seems to be going very much against that. that do you think that works against sort of a prominent role for uh, highly credentialed academics in, in this sort of area? Right. So I made, you know, part of the book got excerpted in the Chronicle of Education, and essentially that is the argument I made. I, I do think that it is possible um, for there to be academics who are thought leaders. Um, think about Jeffrey Sachs, when, you know, talking about eradicating global poverty, or Neil Ferguson uh, talking about Western civilization. They're both extremely impeccably credentialed academics, but they're also functioning as thought leaders. But I do think in general, academics are more likely when they engage in the, the marketplace of ideas to, to function as public intellectuals rather than as thought leaders. And in part, that's because of how we're trained. You know, we're trained to believe that our ideas can be falsified and that there's always sort of nuance to some extent to what we're saying, or at least there's a limited empirical uh, domain to something that we're explaining. So, you know, in any academic article that you put forward, you will always have, you know, usually some kind of hedging or emendation or amendment or, you know, this sort of to be sure paragraph. Um, and a thought leader sort of frees himself or herself from the shackles of those kinds of limits. And instead, confidence is one of the, the key weapons that a thought leader can apply um, in making cases to the marketplace of ideas. I don't know about your experience. I've been in seminars in the academy, um, also in, in more public venues, where I'm hearing someone making an argument, and I'm thinking to myself, this is just wrong. Mm -hmm. And then I think, but they seem so sure of themselves about it. They yeah. seem so utterly confident, and that in and of itself is attractive sometimes. Right. You know, Mother's Day is almost here, and the great way to show your appreciation for all mom has done is with a beautiful bouquet from Pro Flowers. And really, it doesn't have to be Mom or Mother's Day. I mean, who doesn't love getting flowers? I got a bouquet from Pro Flowers not too long ago that really brightened up my morning. I liked it so much, I took a picture and posted it on the Politics Guys Twitter feed and, uh, and Facebook page. You can take a look and see. I think you'll agree. Those are some really nice flowers. And here's a special deal. When you send the 100 Blooms for Mom bouquet from Pro Flowers this Mother's Day, you'll make a real impression because it comes with a free glass vase for just $19.99 plus shipping and handling. And if you really want to make a statement, you can upgrade to a premium vase and include gourmet chocolates for just $10 more. 
Choose the delivery date you want, and Pro Flowers are guaranteed to arrive fresh and beautiful and stay that way for at least seven days or your money back. Now, the only way to get 100 blooms for mom with a free glass vase starting at $19.99 is to visit proflowers.com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and use our code TPG. That's proflowers.com and code TPG when you click on the mic. This stunning bouquet sells out fast, they tell me, so you definitely want to order right away. You know, I, as a social scientist, I've, I guess it's been sort of gratifying for me to see a number of my fellow social scientists become much more influential than, you know, than perhaps had been the case in the, in the past. But I guess as a political scientist, you know, I, I can't help but notice that a lot of these new thought leaders or public intellectuals, depending, uh, seem to be disproportionate, disproportionately economists as opposed to people in my field. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts as to why economists seem to be so big these days. Why I've written a whole chapter on this in the book. So yes, I do have some thoughts about it. Um, I, I think there's a few things going on. One answer, which is specific to economics and political science, is that one of the advantages that economists have is that um, in some ways they have a common normative core which is the, the principle of Pareto optimality or Pareto improvements. The idea that economists generally agree that if you can make someone else better off without making anyone else worse off, that's a, that's a worthwhile move to take because you're increasing efficiency. Um, the problem that political scientists have is that we have a number of different competing normative interests and no real agreement as to how we should prioritize these things. So there's liberty, there's order, there's justice, there's democracy. Um, there's security. These are all concepts that, that in, in political science we talk about and we talk about potentially promoting, but there's no agreement among us about which of these should have priority over the other, and nor should there be. It's a genuine, um, genuinely contested set of ideas, but it means that it's harder for political scientists to have a sort of similar normative core than economists do. Um, I think there are two other reasons, and these are sort of a larger part of the, the book that I'm talking about, the ideas industry, that help to explain why economists are, are generally listened to a little more than political science. One is, is that um, the increasing polarization of American society means that essentially you have, you know, people drift, political elites drifting both to the, the further to the left and further to the right. Um, and it becomes very easy for these ideological groups to stigmatize those on the other side as being sort of out of touch, either, you know, conservative uh, bigots are out of touch, lefties or so on and so forth. And one of the differences between economics and political science is that political scientists are almost uniformly on the left side of the political spectrum. Whereas economists, although they are more liberal than most of American society, are generally considered to be the most moderate or have the most number of conservatives among the social sciences. And so as a result, the accusation against econom uh, economists uh, hits weaker than against political scientists. Um, and then another reason, which I talk about in the book, is the sort of rise of wealth inequality and the rise of sort of a plutocratic class um, uh, of sort of new philanthropic capitalists that are genuinely interested in ideas, but usually want to fund thinkers that essentially are putting forward worldviews that are consistent with their preconceived worldviews of how they got to where they got. Uh, so as a result, economists can sell a message to these people that political scientists can't. Economists like to talk about the idea of sort of the power of entrepreneurship, the power of individuals, you know, through guided by the invisible hand to pursue their self-interest, and so on and so forth. Political scientists, as a general rule, I mean, there are obviously exceptions, but political scientists, we like to make structural arguments. 
And so we are very often telling plutocrats that they got to where they got not because of their own initiative, but because of structural conditions. And shockingly enough, plutocrats don't like to hear that. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering if it's a concern that given that economists seem to be so prominent that that people could start to start to see the world through that one lens, because, of course, they approach the the way they look at problems in a very different way and so forth. And I know I've, I've seen some critiques on the left, especially saying that, you know, this might not be such a great thing if we try to look at every problem, every issue in society through the lens of economics. Well, I mean, I don't want to bash the discipline too much. I certainly think economics has something to offer, but you can argue that that certainly economics has sort of become the universal methodology of, of how intellectuals, you know, talk about public policy in a way that the humanities might have been, let's say, 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. Um, so, yeah, I would obviously like to see political scientists listen to a little more and, and even maybe, you know, sociologists or anthropologists as well. I think the real problem we have is that essentially – I was struck by this. One of the, the things that motivated me to write the book was I was watching at one point Janet Yellen, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, testifying in front of Congress, and she was justifying a particular action that the Fed had taken by citing the economics literature on the on the subject. And it occurred to me that if, let's say, Rex Tillerson or Jim Mattis now were testifying in front of Congress and trying to explain why they were doing what they're doing and reference the international relations literature or the political science literature <laughs> – they would get laughed at yeah. by by Congress. That, that wouldn't be taken seriously. And that I do find problematic. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think the fact that economics is so powerful also contravenes one of the criticisms that are sometimes lobbed at political science right now, which is that somehow political scientists are too you know, wedded to methodologies that are really hard to access, like formal modeling um, or randomized control trials or econometric techniques. Because if there's any discipline that's totally impenetrable to outsiders, it's economics. Yeah. Um, and yet they have the greater influence. You know, when, of course, when academics write in their disciplines, they have some sort of standard measures of influence, ranking of the journal or the number of times an article is cited. And I'm wondering, how can we measure the, the influence, the importance of, of academics who are trying to make a difference in what some would call, you know, the real world? Well, there are obviously certain metrics one can use. You know, I mean, we now, you know, as someone who writes for a public audience, I can, you know, tell you very specifically which articles get how many, you know, online clicks and, and how many Twitter followers I have or how many Facebook followers I have. I, I would suggest, however, those are really dangerous metrics um, to rely upon. And I think in some ways, you know, we, 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 you know, one of the things that we, we started to talk about within the field is the question of things like citation counts. Um, and I think that is absolutely a very useful metric, but it's hardly the be-all, end-all um, in terms of measuring someone's impact. Part of the reason, you know, and you know this if, if you're in political science, is that very often someone might write an article that gets extremely widely cited, but it gets widely cited in the form of, I'm going to write this article in contrast to this idiot, Dresner 2003, who made this dumbass argument. You know, and if you get cited that way, I mean, yeah, you're having impact, I guess, but it's not exactly the best kind of impact. And I think one of the problems sometimes with the, the sort of public marketplace of ideas is that people can write provocative things that generate a lot of commentary about it, but it's not clear that's actually useful or, you know, it's not clear that it's, it's necessarily a productive kind of conversation. So I, I would be wary of, I mean, there have been people who have made, who have made this argument. Rob Farley, for example, I think made an argument in PS a couple of years ago talking about blogging as a, as a genuine form of, of scholarship. And I'm a little leery of that kind of trend. I'm not saying I want to – I don't want 
public engagement to be discouraged. I certainly want it to be encouraged, but I don't want it to be thought of as a vital part of being a scholar. I think being a scholar is is what it is. If you want to engage with the public, that shouldn't be frowned upon. But I also am wary of having people who would be really bad at it trying to engage with the public as well. Right. So why did you decide to sort of reach out beyond academia and write for a more general audience? I mean, you know, it was part of the reason I got a PhD in political science. I mean, I, I was always interested in policy relevant work. I mean, my, my dissertation was on economic sanctions because I thought it was both interesting theoretically, but I also thought it was obviously interesting from a policy perspective. So it never struck me that it was an either or kind of, of trade-off. Um, but those are my predilections. So, you know, that, that was why I started blogging back in 2002. And then, you know, that eventually led to foreign policy in the Washington Post and a, and a few other um, projects. You know, it, it strikes me, it, it, it's almost for me kind of the hobby in relationship to, to the actual scholarship. Um, and furthermore, I would actually argue, and I make this point in the book, I, I think a lot of people, when they talk about public engagement, very often assume that the way this should work is, well, first you do the serious scholarship, and then you write the popular version of it. So maybe you write, like, you know, the scholarly piece in international security, and then maybe the more popular version in foreign policy, and then maybe an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal or what have you. I also think that it can work in reverse. I mean, for me, writing for the Washington Post, for example, as often as I do, very often those columns function as almost like an intellectual sketch pad for me. Um, and they are written in the spirit of, hey, you know, I could be wrong about this, but this is an interesting idea. Um, and, you know, nine times out of ten, the idea doesn't necessarily travel terribly well. But one time out of ten, maybe there's something there that sh that's worth exploring further, either in a longer article or what have you, so um, or a book. So there, there, there's peer-reviewed scholarship that I've written that started off as blog posts. Hmm. So. Do you think, in general, that modern thought leaders and public intellectuals matter uh, the way they did in the past? Or, or am I even sort of right to assume that academics, that, that public intellectuals used to matter uh, a significant amount in the past? Um, I don't think you're wrong about the, the latter point. I mean, there's no doubt that academics have had influence in the past. Indeed, you know, at least in the case of the United States, um, the rise of the, 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 the beginning of the post-war era, the rise of the, the, the Cold War, and in some ways, government funding of research universities on a whole variety of disciplines um, in order to uh, understand how, you know, the policy of anti-communism or containment should be pursued uh, certainly empowered academics to some degree. Um, but I fight very hard against this sort of nostalgic argument that it was better before um, and that somehow public intellectuals are less powerful now. I think what's happened is, is that back in the day, what it was was a much more cosseted marketplace. Um, so there were certainly... You know, scholars like Hans Morgenthau um, or uh, or even public intellectuals like Walter Lippmann um, that genuinely, you know, had substantive influence on on policymaking as well as having influence within the academy. I don't necessarily think that that's gone away. I think there are still people you can point to in the modern day like that. Um, think someone like Joe Nye, for example, um, or, you know, uh, someone who's got a Ph.D. but now writes for a wider audience, someone like Fareed Zakaria. Um I think the difference is, is that it's a simply a bigger marketplace now than it used to be. Um, and so I don't think that it's a case where there are – there might be fewer giants, but that's also because there are more people. Um, and that said, I, I do think the sort of superstar economics 
uh, that operates in today's marketplace of ideas does mean that there are certain people that exercise you know, sort of outsized influence, it's just that some of them aren't academics. Right. You know, some of those people who uh, exercise that outsized influence, some would say that it's because they're the flashiest or the most controversial, the best self-promoters. And, and, and there's, I think, a concern that we, we should do something to improve the quality of intellectual discourse. And I'm wondering if, if there's even a way to do that or if there's anything in particular that academics can do who are maybe interested in reaching a wider audience but don't feel like they want to become, you know, very sensationalistic necessarily. Well, I mean, I would first by, start by pointing out that, you know, self-promotion is a long and distinguished tradition in the academy. So this is hardly unique to uh, the modern era. What might be different in the modern era is that we can observe the self-promotion in a way that we couldn't have before. So, you know, again, speaking in terms of foreign policy, which is the area I know best, if you were trying to self-promote, let's say, back in even 20 years ago, um, you would have done so by, let's say, trying to write up or publish op-eds in the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Financial Times or, or publish in Foreign Affairs or so on and so forth. There were only so many, you know, venues that really attracted all that much attention. We're now operating in a world where there's so much social media and so many different media outlets out there that it becomes easier to observe people trying desperately to sort of capture attention, trying to, to engage in self-promotion. But I think self-promotion is – that's a constant in, in, uh, in the way that, that intellectuals have, have occasionally uh, tried to market their wares. In terms of, of improving the quality of intellectual discourse, I talk about this in the conclusion somewhat – that I mean, I think there are a couple of things that can be done. One is that you know the the sort of traditional sources of funding for intellectuals, places like the sort of traditional mainline foundations, should stop getting obsessed with impact. Um, one of the problems that you're, you've seen in recent years is both universities and foundations have been obsessed with this notion of impact of ideas upon the real world, whether in terms of media mentions or or pointing to concrete changes in policy or so on and so forth. And it's not that I, I think all of these metrics are awful. It's that um, there are times where you want to fund intellectual development and there's not going to be any short-term payoff from it. Uh, and so I think a, a greater degree of patience would be a, a better idea uh, in that sense. The second thing that I think is, is, can be done is to generally just sort of reward greater uh, diversity um, on a whole variety of different dimensions, but, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, of those intellectuals who are entering the marketplace, whether we're talking about gender or race or even political orientation, um, not so much because I necessarily think those will, they will produce better ideas, but rather more heterogeneity in this sense sort of cuts against the kind of superstar phenomena that I talked about before. And I guess the last way, and this, this is, this would be something that would be laughed out of existence if I talked about any other sector, but I do think applies to intellectuals, is a greater sense of self-control, which is to say that, you know, you don't necessarily have to say yes to every writing opportunity or every speaking opportunity. Um, because if there is one sort of group within the United States that should not necessarily automatically respond to material rewards, it should be intellectuals. Um, and so the idea of, you know, learning to have some sort of sustainable public profile rather than trying to say yes to everything and becoming an intellectual brand, I think, is a, an admirable goal per, to pursue. 
Yeah, I'd like to shift gears just for a little bit and talk about uh, current politics, going to tap into your expertise in international relations. Um, uh, in terms of President Trump's foreign policy, do you think that, that he fits into any of sort of the, the standard categories that we think about, or is he, in your view, kind of a complete original? He is sui generis. Um, you know, in some ways, he does fit into the mold of a populist um, in the sense that you know, he is anti-elite and anti-pluralist um, and that his definition of, of the sort of the people is in some ways exclusionary. Um, that doesn't necessarily translate well into foreign affairs. I think the better way to think about the, the, the thing that Trump makes Trump genuinely unique, and this can't be stressed enough, is the degree of radical ignorance that Trump has about world politics. Um, you know, and, and it's come through in the fact that he's reversed course on any one of a number of different policies, whether it's talking about NATO being obsolete or whether China is a currency manipulator or whether the U.S. Embassy is going to move to Jerusalem or what have you. And essentially, he, you know, he's almost being forced to recognize that, that the world is a far more complicated uh, place than what he said during the campaign. Um, and it even, you know, to a limited extent, that came across in that, you know, Gonzo AP interview that he gave last week. Um, in which that he had no, he said he had no idea that the the, the federal government was so big. Um, so in some ways, the way that makes Trump unique is is not necessarily that he has a philosophy. He does have a few core elements of that philosophy, and that he seems to have two core principles. First, this belief that somehow um, the current rules of the game are stacked against the United States, which is not something that you know realists or liberals or even constructivists would necessarily believe. And second, that he thinks that economics is a zero sum game, which is something which is almost an outmoded uh, form of thought uh, among American foreign policy circles. So in that sense, yeah, he's definitely unique. You know, you mentioned his sort of lack of background in, in international politics or domestic politics, really. But And it seems to me, and a lot of folks have commented, it seems to be coupled with uh, a lack of interest in actually learning on the job, as it were, which, which would make it even more dangerous, one would think. No, that's correct. I mean, in some ways, what makes Trump unique Lots of presidents, you know, don't necessarily have a ton of foreign policy experience. But one thing you can say about, you know, people as diverse as Barack Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton was that they, A, knew this was an important topic, and B, knew they needed to study it. Um, they had some appreciate, they had some metacognition, which is to say they knew what they didn't know. Trump has no metacognition whatsoever. He has no idea what he doesn't know. Right. Now, in one of your more recent uh, Washington Post columns, uh, it was an article entitled Trump Fought the Blob and the Blob Won. Uh, so what blob uh, was he fighting? And has enough time passed to say that the blob has definitely beaten him? Right. So the blob is a, a term that uh, Ben Rhodes, who was the uh, director of strategic communications for the National Security Council, uh, under Barack Obama coined in an interview uh, the New York Times Magazine last year. And by the blob, he was referring to derisively to sort of this um, think tank industrial complex inside Washington of basically foreign policy community watchers who were advocating more forceful action in Syria and believe in, in notions like resolve and credibility mattering and so on and so forth. And you can argue that if Trump did run you know, whenever Trump did talk about foreign policy during the campaign, this was an area where Trump actually shared something in common with Barack Obama, which is they both disdained the blob in some ways. Um, and, you know, the, the point I made in that blog post was that, you know, particularly about two weeks ago, Trump seemed to reverse course on one of like six different issues 
in terms of campaign promises versus what he was actually doing. And what he was actually doing was suggesting some continuity with previous uh, foreign policy presidents. Uh, do I think this is a permanent victory? No. In fact, that was the point I made in the blog post, which is that I thought I thought this was temporary. Um, that essentially Trump will do whatever he can to somehow, you know, because he craves popularity and craves adulation, it would not shock me if he takes actions that the foreign policy community likes because that means he can actually get praised. One of the interesting things and one of the more disturbing things about the Syria strikes, for example, was the degree to which a fair number of foreign policy watchers praised Trump for taking action there. And it, it suggests that that might be what he's inclined to do later. Right. Now, in another one of your recent articles, you uh, talk about uh, Donald Trump's tweets. And, uh, of course, his, his supporters often say that he should be taken seriously, but not literally, especially on Twitter. And I'm wondering if you uh, agree with that and also kind of more generally how you've come to understand President Trump's use of Twitter. Right. So I think bluntly that's a load of crap. <laughs> um, you know, I, I understand the argument, which is to say that that, you know, uh, folks like uh, the Heritage Foundation's uh, James Carafano have made the case of, look, not all of Trump's words should be treated equally. A tweet is one thing. A State of the Union address is another. And I think that's certainly a fair point. Um, the problem comes when, it, to some extent, it's not just the domestic audience that is paying attention to what Trump says in these things. It's also the international audience. Um, and if Trump says something particularly provocative and enrages you know, a foreign population, like let's say if he says in an interview casually that China, you know, that South, that Korea used to be part of China, well, guess what? That's going to annoy the Korean population. Um, and so that actually has real world effects so that even if Trump wasn't taking it seriously, the audience will take it seriously. So, you know, to have Trump's defenders go to South Korea and say, no, 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 you need to take him seriously, but not literally. I don't know if that's going to work. But in some ways, the other problem is, is that even if it does work, the problem is, is that it devalues all of presidential rhetoric. So if, you, if you're basically told, look, Trump's just popping off, you should pay no attention to that. The question then obviously arises, well, then when should you take Trump's words literally? If you could discount what he's saying, if you could discount, you know, threats that Iran is being put on notice, for example, then if he actually does issue a credible threat, how do you know that he's actually going to follow through on it? Um, you know, we saw this, by the way, with uh, the dispatch of the, the Carl Vinson, that carrier group, the fact that they said it was going steaming up north and then as it turned out, it wasn't. So that undercuts his credibility as well. So I think the problem is, is that presidents before Trump recognized that when they said something in public, the words mattered. I think the problem with Trump is, is that he doesn't think the words matter all that much. Um, he's not necessarily all that precise. And maybe in some areas you can say, well, that's because we should take him seriously, but not literally. But, you know, if other actors in the world take him seriously and literally, then we have to as well. Right. You know, you kind of indirectly mentioned the North Korea situation with, with, with uh, the, the Vincent and so forth. And it seems to me, like a, it seems to a lot of people that there's a really good chance that the North Korea situation may sort of come to a head during Donald Trump's presidency. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how you think this could perhaps play out. Um, it says something that I think in some ways the best case scenario is essentially a continuation of the status quo. Um, you know, I've written before that, that there are ways in which the North Korean crisis has a certain stability to it, of all things, in that, you know, North Korea continues to launch nuclear tests. We continue to ratchet up sanctions against North Korea. North Korea continues not to care about this. China continues to urge dialogue, impose some degree of sanctions, but nonetheless doesn't want the North Korean regime to disappear. And then we continue on um, to the next year. 
there are ways in which this is still going to be the case because it's going to be a couple of years at least before before North Korea develops the kind of missile technology that would really genuinely represent a threat to the United States. Um, but even so, even if North Korea gets to that stage, my hunch is is that you know even that's not that big of a threat. So um, it's not obvious to me that precipitous action will be taken. So you don't you don't think necessarily then that President Trump's suggestion he's willing to go easier on trade for Chinese cooperation with North Korea will will yield any sort of significant results then? I think it's ludicrous on several levels, um, but the most obvious one is that um, it's not obvious. As I said, China's security, China's strategic interests have been very clear for the last 20 years now, which is China doesn't want North Korea to proliferate. But they also don't want North Korea to disappear. They want a North Korean buffer between South Korea and the Chinese mainland. And they also don't want the North Korean state to disintegrate because that would lead to waves of refugee flows. So as a result, you know, China is exasperated by what North Korea does. I'm sure they would prefer North Korea be a more pliant client state. Um, but the simple fact is that they will live with the status quo. And just one final question I have for you, and I think it's especially, I think, uh, appropriate question for you, given given your last book on, on public intellectuals and thought leaders. What what sort of writers or books or, or other resources would you recommend to people, sort of the highest quality that, that you think uh, is, is out there for public intellectuals, thought leaders, for people who are interested in having a better understanding, a deeper understanding of, of politics and international relations and what they might be likely to get just sort of randomly surfing? Uh, that's a tough question. Um, there's a couple of books I'm reading now that that I'm finding very engaging and that I would recommend, uh, I guess, to others. Uh, one is a book that I'm just wrapping up by Brian Bew called Realpolitika History, um, which is an outstanding sort of intellectual history of the very idea of realpolitik, not realism, but realpolitik, and the ways in which, in fact, it is somewhat distinct from realism. Um, and I enjoyed that. Uh, I've enjoyed that immensely and, and learned a lot from it. Um, there's another book that came out about two months before mine uh, by Tom Nichols, who's a professor at the Naval War College, called The Death of Expertise. And, and in some ways, it's, it's in good antecedent to my book. Um, and it points to one of the, 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 the causes of the shift in marketplace of ideas, which is the erosion of trust and authority and expertise. And I certainly think that would be worth reading. Um, there's two books that I'm reading now that I'm enjoying, um, not by political scientists. One is uh, by Pankaj Mishra um, called uh, The Age of Anger, I think. Um, and you know, Mishra is just sort of a full-blown public intellectual, and I was, I'm a particularly big fan of his previous book, From the Ruins of Empire. Um, I'm actually less uh, – uh, Mishra's book, uh, ironically, is, is succeeding in making me angry because I think I disagree with it some. Uh, but that said, I, I, I like a book that, that gets me that exercise, so I, I, uh, I'm still continuing to read it. Um, and then the final book, which I've been recommending to everyone because I think it's, it's a great uh, argument and also deals with the sort of ways in which we argue, uh, is by Phoebe Maltz-Bovey, and it's called The Perils of Privilege. And it's basically about the sort of dangers or hazards of engaging in kind of debates about privilege uh, in public discourse and why it's not necessarily a fruitful line of inquiry. Well, okay, that's a that's a great reading list. I think I'm going to head right on over to Amazon and add some to my to my wish list there. Thank you for that. And with that, we will close. Dr. Daniel Dresner, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun. That's it for this Politics Guys interview. Thanks for listening. 
If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. You know, we really appreciate our great listeners who have so generously supported the show through their donations. If you'd like to join them, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website, politicsguys.com. And if money's tight or you're already a financial supporter, please consider hitting that share icon on your podcast app to pass this episode along to your friends and followers. Leaving ratings and reviews of the show on your app and sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps to spread the word, which helps to bring in new listeners, leading to the donations and advertisers that make it possible for us to keep on bringing you the politics guys. And finally, thanks to today's sponsor, proflowers.com, where you can get 100 blooms for mom bouquet and a free glass vase starting at $19.99 by going to proflowers.com, clicking on the microphone in the top right corner and using our code TPG. That's proflowers.com and code TPG when you click on the mic. We'll be back with a new interview next Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.